It's a joy to read together this morning from uh, Luke, the story of the resurrection. Uh, We're going to start at the beginning of Luke and go all the way through in chapter 24 and go all the way through to verse 35. So I think you'll be able to see it on the screen or on your phone. I'll just give you a couple of moments to find it if you'd like to follow along. Luke 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb... They told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us what they had seen, that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, 
broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. Christ is risen. Amen. Well, let me pray. I'll just get my books organized. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful day as we remember the greatest day in history when Christ rose from the dead. And Father, fill our hearts with joy, with faith and repentance on this day as we come to you and to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 1937, a 19-year-old from France who was named Angelo Hayes or Angel Hayes went for a motorcycle ride. And people wonder if he had a minimal knowledge of how to ride a motorcycle because he ended up crashing it and slamming the head first into a brick wall. When they arrived, they found that Hayes' head was mangled and he had no pulse. He was so terrible to look at that they wouldn't even let his parents inspect the body. Hayes was declared dead and they buried him three days later. Now there was an investigation with an insurance company and they had to exhume the body. And so two days after the funeral and after they'd buried him, it was quite the surprise to find that his body was still warm. Apparently in the aftermath of the accident, his body put itself into a deep coma and required very little oxygen to keep his system going. Now after being buried alive, they took him to the hospital, he got good care and he made a full recovery, quite miraculous. Now guess what he did after that? You'd never guess. He went on to invent a type of security coffin that he toured across France. And it was reported to contain a small oven, a refrigerator and a hi-fi cassette player. And this is a picture of the poster. And on it, it says, a life-preserving coffin in doubtful cases of actual death. Apparently, that's true. I say apparently, well, at least Wikipedia and Google searches reveal that it is true. But as you know, in today's world of fake news, who knows? You can read anything and everything, and you do left, are left wondering often, what is the truth of this? And this guy appears to be valid. He made a, not a resurrection from the dead, but he never actually died, but he made a resurrection from the grave at least. And let me say, there are numbers of people who have revived, uh, not died, they just weren't dead when they buried them. That's not uncommon. But here we are today on Easter Sunday, and there's no doubt that what we're celebrating in human terms is absurd. Ridiculous, really, that you could have someone not doubtfully put to death, absolutely put to death. 
Uh, the Roman soldiers who oversaw his crucifixion absolutely were experts in death. And at the end of his crucifixion, they tested to see if he was alive by putting a spear in his side and the evidence was dead. And yet the cornerstone of the Christian church is this belief that Jesus didn't just die on Good Friday that we celebrated two days ago, but that he rose again on the third day, Sunday. And he's seated now in heaven, having not just risen, but he has ascended to the right hand of God. And not just that, he will one day return to judge the living and the dead. And all of us, and I do mean every single person here in the building, will one day see him. There will be a day when he returns to judge the world and to rule the world. And this truth is the centerpiece of the Christian faith that he rose bodily, physically. If you were there, you could have touched him. You could have eaten with him. He rose from the dead. And I say it's the corner piece and really it's the turning point of Christian history, world history in many ways. Because before this Sunday morning, the disciples were depressed, they'd given up, the ladies, they came in the reading, not expecting a resurrection, but they really came to finish what had been rushed on the Friday, which was the preparation of the body with burial. And because of the rush to get Jesus' body down off the cross and into the tomb before sunset and the beginning of the Sabbath took place... They had to return after the Sabbath very early in the morning to anoint his body with the herbs and to finish the burial preparations that normally would have taken place in one time, one place. But yet after that moment and the resurrection of Jesus, a movement began through history that has never been stopped. And you don't have to know much of history that within three centuries, the Christian faith really was now dominating the Roman Empire. And the outworking of that has been not just the transformation of individual people, but really the transformation of the world, particularly our Western society, the notions of education for all, of care for the young, of equal rights for all people, of care for the disadvantaged, the notions of justice, compassion, humility, they all flow from this reality of the death and particularly the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, we would not have the New Testament if there was no resurrection because literally there'd be nothing to write about. That is the reality. We have these documents and literally there are thousands of them in terms of the copies made in the early centuries because of an event which is the resurrection they wrote about this reality. And all of the New Testament, it one, one way, shape or form, reflects on this reality that Christ died and that Christ rose. And what I want to talk about today is from Luke's Gospel. And Luke has the longest of the four Gospel recollections of this wonderful day. If you go to Mark's Gospel, it's very short, eight verses to announce the resurrection. Here we've got over 50. And it's a beautiful, powerful rendition, remembering of the incredible events that took place on that day and following to mark the resurrection of Jesus. And I want us to get to think about how do we be transformed by this event today? How can we be transformed this day, 2,000 years on, by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, there's two things I want to say. We need to believe the miracle of the resurrection. And it is a miracle that Christ defeated death. 
And I want to encourage us to believe that this day, but not just to believe it, but to also grasp, sorry, the meaning of the resurrection. And this chapter gives us good reasons to understand both of these things. It's detailed so that we can believe it, but it also explains for us what the meaning of it is. Firstly, believing the miracle of the resurrection. It is a fantastic reading that we've had by Bell this morning about the resurrection. And it starts with those first women who dutifully went to the early tomb early in the morning as literally the sun and its rays are breaking through the first light of day and they discover that the tomb is empty. And they're met there by the angels. And the angels utter those words which have echoed through history. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. And we've recited those words today as believers two centuries on. But if you're like me, at this time of the year, you'll often read things in the media which will cast dispersion and doubt and scepticism about whether this really happened or even it will just be an outright denial that there was a physical resurrection of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ on that day. And nearly every Easter, I read some article that has some way, shape or form, doubts to cast on this truth. And what needs to be said is the mindset of scepticism is not actually a modern mindset. Belief in the resurrection of Jesus was implausible back then, actually as it is today. And I think sometimes that we modern people think that the stories of the Easter events were made up because people in the ancient world were more simple, they were more gullible, and they called things miracles that today we could explain better by modern science, and that people from the ancient Roman era didn't have the technology or their educational progress that we now have. And so it's easy to write off these um, historical narratives as really just legend or something of that nature. But it is worth saying the only people in Jesus' day who believed in a resurrection were the Jews. You see, it was a ludicrous idea in the first century that you would have someone from within history raised from the dead. It's interesting, if you read the book of Acts, Paul goes and announces the resurrection of the dead in Acts chapter 17. And you know what they do? They laugh at him. They just think this is ridiculous. Now the Jews, they did believe in the resurrection from the dead. But not within history, not within your experience of, if I can say, this life. The resurrection was something that was happening at the end of time when God wrapped up history and saved his people. Not within it. And what you get here is this beautiful document that with accuracy outlies for us the reliability of the account. And historians talk about the reasons for believing in terms of the historical event of the resurrection, the empty tomb, the early witnesses who saw him. What we've got here is an account that gives both of those. And I want to give you three reasons as to why you should believe this account is true. And the first thing is the form of the account. It's not a legend the way it's written. It's actually oral testimony of people who saw it. Secondly, the nature of the witnesses themselves speak in terms of the authenticity of this account. And thirdly, the cluelessness of the disciples. I'll come to that at the end. But let's think firstly about the form of the account. I think people often can think that this is just a legend. It's a fairy tale. 
Now, the thing to note is with fairy tales and legends, they have mythical people and creatures like Hansel and Gretel and Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And that's the way they're described. But you don't see that in any way, shape or form. What's fascinating is the way that Luke records the names of the people. And I don't think we think too much of this, but in that day and age, when you wrote historical narrative to communicate to people things that had happened, you would write the names in the way we would footnote essays because they had no capacity to footnote things. And Richard Borkham, I'll come to him later, is the one who has detailed the study on this. And what you've got here in this account is a number of different people whose names are recorded for you. And the reason they're done is because in that day and age, these are names of people who were known. And what's interesting is he only gives you the first names. Now, why is that? It's because they were known. They were real people who existed. You go to the account of the resurrection, sorry, the crucifixion. It's Simon from Cyrene. If you want to know about the, re- the crucifixion, go and talk to him. Here in chapter 24, in terms of the uh, resurrection, verse 10 of chapter 24, we're told who the women were. It was Mary Magdalene. It was Joanna. It was Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them. They told it to the apostles. Secondly, the apostles themselves are named as those who witnessed it. Now, we already know who they are from the story of Luke's gospel. You've got the names of what now exists, 11 of them. And then thirdly, you had Cleopas and his friend, and they have that incredible experience of going on this journey on the uh, road to Emmaus, walking with Jesus, and we're told it's Cleopas and his friends. They were known people. And Richard Borker makes the point in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, in the ancient world you did this to validate the testimony of what was being described. They are the footnotes, these names. And Luke is writing historical narrative, not legend, not fairy tale, but oral testimony of people who were there and they saw it. But secondly, the nature of these witnesses is that they're embarrassing. Firstly, the women. When you have a look at verse 11, it's interesting to note what uh, the apostles do. The women go and they tell the words of the angel that Jesus is not dead, he's alive. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them. And they told the apostles, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. And what you've got here is typical of the attitude towards female testimony in the first century. There's no reason uh, men and women together have the same validity in terms of their testimony, we would absolutely say today, but back then it was not the case. Women were not believed. Even the disciples would not believe their close women friends. It's absurd what you're saying. And you can see here, they're not expecting a resurrection. But thirdly, the cluelessness of the disciples. And when you get to verse 24 and 25, we read these words. He said, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And he's talking to Cleopas and his friend. But what he is describing here is typical of the disciples. I don't know if you're like me, but I don't think I'd want to be called dull of mind by my boss. (laughs) But that's exactly how Jesus describes his followers on one occasion. You are so thick, basically, saying. And not just that they're so thick. 
they're so vain. And there's that famous incident where two of the mothers are coercing their sons to jockey for position left and right of Jesus in the kingdom. It's incredibly embarrassing to have it written down, let me say, if you're those disciples. On other occasions, they struggle to believe. And at the end, Peter, who was, you know, the number one and leader of the pack, and oh, so brave, yes, I'll follow you unto my death, three times denied Jesus at his greatest point of need. And all of this is written down. And what's amazing is when these Gospels were written and circulated, these leaders were alive. They were the leaders of the church. And historians all say if the leaders were all alive when these things were circulated, there is no way they would have let these negative things circulate unless they actually really happened and the apostles let them write it. Because it's just too embarrassing. And when you wrote history in that day, you didn't put that kind of stuff in. History is the record of the conquerors. That's the reality of history. And let me say, they never put the embarrassing bits in. Unless they thought it was significant and needed to go in. And you see, the whole form of this account is faithful, oral testimony. Embarrassing in many ways that the women were the first ones there revealing how clueless and thick the disciples were. Personal in terms of the actual people you could go and talk to. And what they spoke of was the empty tomb and their personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask this question. You may be here this morning and you're struggling to believe it. You may be someone who's skeptical of it. And let me just say, it's great you're here. We want to welcome people who... Uh, struggling, who are sceptical, because the way you'll learn is by asking questions. Let me ask this question, if you don't believe this, and I want to ask this very gently, I want you to ask yourself the question, why? Given the reliability of these documents that we've got with the Gospels. And just to think historically, How could it ever be possible that thousands of Jews, and when I say thousands, I literally mean thousands of Jewish people from the first century, post this event of the resurrection, literally changed their whole way of thinking about their religion overnight. And as a result, ended up transforming the very world we've inherited today. Because the last people on the face of the earth who could ever believe that a man could be God were the Jews. Because all of their life, they had been taught that there is one God and he lives in heaven. And yet within weeks, days literally, they are worshipping him as the risen saviour and king of kings. And it happens overnight. How is that possible if there was not a resurrection? So let me encourage us, believe the miracle of the resurrection. It's true, Christ is risen. And if you were there, you could have seen it. But secondly, let's think about the meaning of the resurrection. It's one thing to know that Jesus came back from the dead. It's another thing entirely to believe and to understand why. 
verse 6 and verse 7. The angels are speaking to the ladies. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When the angels speak, they don't rebuke the disciples and the women because they didn't believe in miracles. They correct their thinking about their understanding of Jesus because the women and the disciples did not understand why Jesus had to die and why he had to rise. And it's very interesting in Luke's gospel, three times in this chapter, we're reminded of this reality that Jesus had to die and had to rise again. First, the women are told it with the angels, then Cleopas is told it, and then Jesus repeats it to all of them at the very end of the chapter. And there's an interesting little Greek word in the original text, which simply means must. And it's repeated three times. And what the text is showing us is that there was a necessity about Jesus' death and his resurrection. Jesus must die and must be risen from the dead. Verse 25, he said to them, and this is to Cleopas and his friend, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer? He must suffer these things and then enter his glory. The women knew he died, the disciples knew he died. What they didn't understand is why. And the answer to the why question comes at the very end of the chapter. It's beyond what was read to us by Bell, and I'll read it to us. In verse 46 and 47, as Jesus gathers his disciples, he told them, this is what was written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. I had to die, I had to rise, so that what could be announced to the world is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And I want to stop by just getting us to think about what Jesus is saying. Because it's what he says to the world. I have come, I have died, I have written, risen, so that repentance for the forgiveness of sins can be announced to everyone. Sin is probably the easier concept to understand. It's to be out of fellowship with God. It's to ignore God. It's to want to run life our own way. It's more than just the things we do, the sins we accumulate, the wrong things, the brokenness that we're all struggling with. At a deep level, it's that sense of, I don't want God to be over me, to be in charge of me. I'll run my own life, thank you. But what does it mean to have repentance for the forgiveness of those sins? The word repentance comes from an interesting Greek word. I'll explain it to you. It's the word metanoia. And I don't normally quote Greek words, but it's helpful to contrast this word with another Greek word, metamorphos. And both of them have this prefix meta, which means to change. And I mentioned, and John Dixon was explaining this at Life of Jesus very helpfully on Wednesday night for those who were there. I think when we think of uh, people becoming followers of God and religion, they think of the word metamorphosis, which is where we get the word metamorphosis. And it's a word that describes a change of form. And you think about in nature how you can have animals that change form. A butterfly is a classic example. It goes from a grub and there is a metamorphosis, a change of form, and it becomes the beautiful butterfly. 
And I think when people think of religion and getting religion, they think, oh, I've just got to change the outside. I should start praying. I should start reading my Bible. I should start coming to church. Now, all those things are good things. But they're reflecting a belief that if I have a metamorphosis, a change of form, then somehow I'll be right. But Jesus says, no, you need a change of mind for the forgiveness of sins. And let me say, when you have a change of mind, and he describes it with this word, which we articulate as repentance, the metamorphosis will flow. And the word repent means to change your mind. And I want to put it this way. You could talk about it in terms of a turning around. Repent, turn around. But another way you could put it is, and if I can put it in kind of a a simple English, it's a coming to your senses. You're changing your mind. And you're coming to senses about who God is and about who you are. And I want to illustrate it from my own life. Uh, Many of you will know I grew up in the church and I was a choir boy. I could sing and they trundled me off to the choir. I got paid. I was quite happy about that, though I was very bored. And the reality and experience of church was singing to those who were often asleep and then we would go to sleep. And it was a fairly deathly spiritual experience. And by the time I got to 16, my voice had broken, I'd been kicked out and I left the church. And I thought I would go and find life outside of God and the church through parties and drinking and girls and all that kind of stuff. And got to the age of 20 and realized that the life I was seeking, I'd never actually found. There was just this sense of constant hangovers and emptiness. And I'd met Christians who, for the first time in my life, they looked alive. They were different. And I started to read the Gospels. And something strange happened to me. I came to my senses. I repented. And when I say I came to my senses, I started to understand who God was as I read his story. I came to my senses about him, that he was the God who was alive. His son had come. He died. He'd risen. And I realized this. And I came to my senses about that. But secondly, I need to come to my senses about me. That I was broken. And what I needed to do was come back to God. And trust him. And in my coming to sense with God, I realized that this God was not against me he was for me he sent his son to die for me and I needed to come to him who wanted to forgive me and that's what Jesus says we are to announce to the world the Messiah has died the Messiah is risen the king he is the king of kings and he wants the world to know come to your senses and realize that I am the king of kings And come to me. Come to your senses about yourself. You are broken. You are sinful. You need your sins forgiven. And I've died for you and I'll forgive you. Come to your senses. And I want to close by just asking you, do you need to come to your senses today? One of the most beautiful parts of this resurrection narrative is in the middle of chapter 24. 
And it's at the end of this journey that the two disciples, Cleopas and his friend, have been on with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And they're so enthralled talking to Jesus. The scriptures are alive as he teaches them. They say, can you stay for dinner? He does. And then we read in verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks and he broke it and gave, began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. And then they look at each other. And they say to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And I read that because I was thinking about my own life. What stopped me from coming to my senses and repenting? And it's because I thought life would end if I gave my life to God. I knew enough to know that a metamorphosis would be involved. A transformation was needed. That there was a whole bunch of stuff I'd need to put behind me and walk away from. And so I thought what would happen is I would lose my life. But my coming to my senses and my repentance was such a joy. Because I discovered life. As I realized my sins were washed away. And that Christ had risen and that one day I would rise with him and I will rise with him. And friends, when I think on this, my heart burns with joy. And that's what Easter Sunday announces. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So that we might know the joy of eternal fellowship with God and our sins washed away. Oh, happy day. And friends, if you don't know that reality of your sins washed away, of coming to your senses and repenting, and coming to the Savior who loves you and wants to give you life, I want to say to you this morning, what's stopping you from coming to your senses today and coming to him? Let's stop and pray. And if you know in your heart you need to come to your senses about who God is in yourself and come to him, it's very simple. We just need to admit that's where we're at and believe this miracle of the resurrection and come and commit our lives to him. I'll give you a moment if you need to pray that this morning to pray and then I'm going to pray for all of us in about 60 seconds. Oh, happy day when Jesus washed our sins away. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful happy day as we remember Jesus' resurrection over death. That sin is paid for, that death is defeated, that eternal life is available. That Jesus had to die and had to rise again. And for any here who are struggling, who know they need to come to you, I pray that by your spirit you would give them that strength to admit their need of you, to believe in what you've done and who you are, 
and to commit their life to you this day. Father, thank you that we have forgiveness of sins as we come to our senses and come to you. 